You're listening to Their Auto Be a Law, the Center for Auto Safety podcast with Executive Director Michael Brooks, Chief Engineer Fred Perkins, and hosted by me, Anthony Simino. For over 50 years, the Center for Auto Safety has worked to make cars safer. Okay. I'm hey, good here. morning. Yeah. Okay. So normally I hit the the gates. Yeah. Everyone's aggressive. So normally I hit record and it gives me an option of where I'm recording. It didn't give me that option today. So, hey, fingers crossed that we're recording. Hey, listeners, did you really need to know about that? No, but what you do need to know is uh, Takata is back in the news. Takata, um, notorious for making their exploding airbags, exploding in the wrong way. So BMW is recalling a small number of SUVs in the U.S. because of the drive, because uh, of the airbag inflators, they can blow apart in a crash. Uh, the recall raises questions about the safety of about 30 million Takata inflators that are still under investigation by NHTSA. Most have not been recalled. Wait, I thought Takata. So this is the thing where the 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 uh, the inflator will just you're driving down the street and then all of a sudden boom it explodes in your face you get bits of metal shrapnel in your face you did nothing wrong and now you're severely maimed or possibly dead i thought these were stopping manufactured like a decade ago i thought they'd all been recalled no i think the the last ones of the batch you're talking about were, were they stopped being put into vehicles around 2017 model year or so um but those were there were two generally two sets of airbag inflators that were being looked at in that investigation one big batch of around 70 million inflators were the ones that had ammonium nitrate propellant that did not have a drying agent or a desiccant um in the inflator to prevent the humidity accumulation that resulted in degradation of the propellant pellets pellets propellant pellets and resulted in the the defect which is basically the propellant was not able to um basically explode in a controlled manner um that it's designed to to inflate your airbag and um ended up you know exploding creating so much effectively creating so much uh propellant so quickly that it is blowing the airbag inflator apart versus inflating the airbag. Um, That was the initial batch of Takata recalls that everyone's heard about again and again. Um, Did not have that drying agent. NHTSA basically said, if it has this, it's going to prevent the pellet from being degraded and we're not going to see this problem. Um, So what's going on with these new ones? Or is this they have the, they have they have the desiccant. So they have this basically. It's you know I think I've described it before as that little packet you get in your beef jerky, the silica gel. <laughs> I don't think it's silica gel, but it serves a similar purpose. It's to prevent the um, airbag propellant from over time through accumulating humidity and degrading. So supposedly that's what it does and you know the bmw recall it issue here bmw says in the in the 573 report you know this is a manufacturing defect we believe we're still looking we're still analyzing it but we think this is you know one problem that's occurred in this lot of airbag inflators um which is 
certainly plausible, but it's also the same excuse that every manufacturer has made from the beginning of Takata and in the ARC airbag um, investigation that's going on right now. Manufacturers do a recall of, you know, a, a couple hundred to a thousand vehicles. Supposedly the airbag inflator came out of a bad lot and that's why the defect happened. But that doesn't really assuage our concerns that there might be, you know, more going on here that the, you know, these airbags weren't being installed in vehicles. This newest Takata issue, they weren't being installed in vehicles until around the 2013 model year. The original batch of, of non-desiccated bags started going to vehicles in 2002. So we started seeing those crashes occur around seven years later after those airbags were installed into vehicles. And in this case, we're starting to see a similar pattern, although it's it's hard to be certain. You know, it, it's certainly possible that it's a manufacturing, something that happened on Friday afternoon, um, and that these airbags are going to be safe for the useful life of the vehicle. We just simply don't have enough evidence one way or the other at this point to determine that. Yeah, so in an article that we'll link to from uh, ABC, uh, according from that, in a statement, BMW blamed the ruptured inflator on a welding defect in manufacturing and said it is limited to a small lot of inflators. Uh, so this sounds kind of like what they're saying with the ARC airbag situation. So so this is for, for listeners, this is if you have a BMW, this is for 2014 model year. Um, this is not for... Uh, more recent models, right? 2013, 2014. I don't think they've fully defined this batch yet. Uh, stop me if I'm wrong, gentlemen. But and and Takata itself doesn't exist as a company anymore. They went bankrupt because of the first batch of airbag issues in like 2017, right? Right. Well, I think <clears throat> I think they still exist as a company, but I think they're operating in bankruptcy. Isn't that so? Uh, they are, there's a company, basically a new company was created. I think it's called TK Holdings. Um, that is in operation, but I'm not, I think they've basically been taken over by another company. I think it's Joyson Safety Systems or something like that. But there's not, I don't think there's any more money left in the kitty from the Takata bankruptcy to cover what would be happening in this recall. I think that would be something that the manufacturers are going to have to eat on their own, which, you know, may be another reason why they might be resistant to recalling this new batch. What, I mean, one of the really kind of, I guess it's kind of, a, it's something that's really important to us about this whole situation, taking all these airbag recalls in into account You've got 70 million airbags in the initial Takata problem, 30 million in this batch of desiccated bags, and 50 million of the ARC airbags. Um, that's 150 million airbags, which, you know, we have 250, 270 million vehicles on the road in America. I mean, you're, I mean, I don't think it's because not all those airbags are in vehicles now, but I mean, you're looking at numbers, you know, you could have 100 million vehicles on the road at some point that have a questionable, airbag system and not just questionable in that it doesn't protect occupants in the crash effectively questionable in that it's creating a completely separate threat to drivers and passengers that are in the vehicle and you know that really makes us wonder it definitely makes me wonder it's maybe the government should have 
or, or even, you know, industry standards should have more specific standards that manufacturers need to follow when manufacturing and designing airbags to ensure, first of all, that, you know, not only is this type of problem not occurring, um, but that it's not occurring within, you know, the first 30 or 40 years possibly of a vehicle's life. I mean, they functionally need to eliminate the chance of explosive inflators in cars. And I think that's possible. I don't know. Is that possible, Fred? Is that, or is that something that would cost them so much money that they could never come back? Well, I'm glad you asked. Um, quoting from a <laughs> Takata report, technical report on the current status of the Takata root cause evaluation effort, July 22, 2016. Uh, which is marked Takata confidential and proprietary, but it's available on the internet, so I'm just going to ignore that. Um, all right, but the quoting from the report, it says, the results of the testing for humidity uh, conducted with a strong desiccant driving the moisture transfer and a sample of 2004 and 3110 driving the moisture transfer. Those numbers refer to the formulations of the ingredients in the uh, airbag inflator show that the moisture ingress is significantly faster in the diffusion test than the permeation test. Unfortunately, the industry standard helium leak test is only suitable for identifying leak paths important in the permeation-driven transport mechanism. So what, what does that mean? It means that in 2016, Takata itself said that the industry standard test for determining the long-term integrity of the airbag inflators was insufficient. And so this is a report that was given to NHTSA. And uh, in response to that, NHTSA did nothing. So that's an interesting response to notification that the industry standard test is insufficient to assure people's safety. Um, as we've said a couple times in the past, the military and uh, industry and other venues is used to making very high quality similar devices. And in fact, the it was interesting that the ARC spokesperson in the hearing a couple of weeks ago talked about with a lot of pride that they have 95% reliability with 50% confidence. He thought that was pretty good. So I'm looking at a um, advertising brochure from a company called PacSci, which is in a similar business. They make pyrotechnic initiators and things like explosive bolts and things that you've heard about. Uh, they're Wait, confident. No, no one's heard of explosive bolts before. I don't know oh, sure. Come on. You've seen, you've seen rockets go up and separate into stages. And uh, Okay. Uh, Everybody has a few of those in their garage anyway. Yeah. Um, yeah, Arlington did this week. <laughs> so these industry standard reliability predictions here are 0.999 or greater at 90% confidence level. So this contrasts with the 95% uh, reliability and the 50% confidence level that ARC was touting as their safety standard. So wow, that 50 it, sounds really low to me. Is that is I thought it was like 90, 99 and 95 or something. Well, that's their confidence. 50% level. confidence sounds like me walking out the door every day. 
<laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, you've probably got 50% confidence that you have your car keys in your pocket. So how often have you gone back in the house to get your car keys? Anyway, uh, as we stated when the ARC numbers came out a couple of weeks ago, basically the industry is free to put junk in your car that can kill you. And uh, they have made no attempt to achieve the kind of safety that is customary in military and industrial uses of similar technology. So take that, friends, oh. and, and recognize that that's what's in your steering column every time you start your car. Listeners, I mean, all of that doom and gloom does not mean that you should go take a screwdriver right now and try to pry out your airbag. Okay, airbags are not perfect, but please do not try to remove your airbag. But if you do, film it and send us the link. No, do not do that, folks. Because don't do it at all. (laughs) When when you try to take it out, you may well set it off. This that's a world of hurt. Actually, an incident I believe where the guy was hitting the airbag with a hammer, and in one of the Takata incidents, and it blew up. So no, don't do that. We already know what happens. Anthony, bite your tongue, young man. Okay, yeah, don't remove your airbag. Um, Airbags make your car safer. This is more of a failing of regulations and lack of them. And that's something that I want to emphasize here, too. I was thinking about that yesterday. Like, you know, we talk bad about these airbags and these inflators, but that's, you know, the the number of lives saved and injuries that are prevented by airbags every year outweighs this you know the injuries and deaths related to all of these takata airbag um and my wife and my wife and daughter are among those people just so you know i mean it's not even close um seat belts you know obviously are the number one safety device and they save more more people than anything but airbags are pretty very high up the list um and so you know we're nowhere close to the idea that airbags are somehow more damaging to humans than um than they should be or or that they're actually causing more problems than they are saving lives that's that's not even in the calculations it right. couldn't be further from the truth airbags good regulations of airbags even better so this is a solvable problem i mean they made uh, seatbelts regulated right Right. Please tell me that seatbelts have some sort of safety standard around them. Oh, yes. Oh, good. Thank God. So they can do the same thing for airbags. Why not? Hey, we have crumple zones. There's probably a regulation around that. Right. Please. Am I jumping too far down the rabbit hole? Do you really think that 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 regulation exists for crumple zones? Have you seen the the cyber truck? Uh, Okay. well, we can get we can get uh, airbag regulations. So people, this is what we can do. Good. Keep your airbags in. Now, hey, let's, uh, you know, Fred's talking from his uh, compound in the lovely state of Massachusetts. Let's go to find an update from another man in the lovely state of Massachusetts. Senator Edward Markey of that liberal bastion of Black Sox and Birkenstocks uh, came out. And this is an article we're linking to from Ars Technica. Quoting. Markey noted that the Mozilla Foundation, in his letters, were sent to BMW, Ford, GM, blah, 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 blah. Uh, The senator is concerned about the large amount of data that modern cars can collect, including the troubling potential to use biometric data, like the rate that a driver blinks and breathes, as well as their pulse, to infer mood or mental health. Senator Markey is also worried about automakers' use of Bluetooth which he said has expanded their surveillance to include information that has nothing to do with the vehicle's operation, 
such as data from smartphones that are wirelessly connected to the vehicle. So I just jumped right into the deep end here. So let's take a step back. Marky's writing about the privacy concerns around modern vehicles and that uh, us as occupants, not even just the driver, but just as occupants in the vehicle, we have no rights around privacy, it seems, because somebody in the car at some point said, agree to a long screen, blah, 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 just so they can drive to the Piggly Wiggly and get groceries. Done. Out. Good night. I There's... It's really interesting thinking about this because there are so many things that the vehicle collects that that you would kind of pause and go, well, how are they using, you know, your heartbeat monitor? That sounds stupid. My car is gathering information like that. But if you have a driver monitoring system that is built to ensure that medical events don't result in crashes, it makes perfect sense. Um, and kind of the dividing line here at least for me in looking at this you know there's a lot of information that cars are collecting when the big problem is monetization of that data when that data leaves general motors and goes to someone a third party that has nothing to do with automobiles or safety and they're using that data to sell you popcorn or whatever it is that's the problem i mean using in vehicle data to make the vehicles better or to improve their quality or to improve the customer experience is perfectly valid as long as that information is sealed and can't be transferred to a third party um now that there's another sector here of passengers you know why are we collecting data on passengers and that's uh, uh, that doesn't really get into some of you know you shouldn't be collecting data on the heartbeat of passengers. I don't believe unless, you know, maybe there's some type of medical car in the future that, you know, is going to take care of us all and drive us to the hospital. If there's a problem, that's not even worth thinking about at the moment, but it's, there's basically two sets here. I mean, there's good data, which is the data that is going towards improving the safety of the vehicle and is being collected. It could be anything it's collecting about your behavior. I mean, there are a lot of, there's a lot of information that a driver monitoring system would need to collect in order to figure out if you're drunk, if you're in the middle of a medical episode, if you're drowsy and require the vehicle to pull over or to you know ensure that that condition is not going to impact yourself or other people on the road getting that data to a third party selling it monetizing it which we think a lot of manufacturers are doing and which senator markey's letter requests specific details on you know what are you guys doing with this data is, is an important part of it that's where the real problems come in. And I don't think anyone who drives a car wants their data being sold to third parties. Yet the this, the system for opting out isn't clearly defined. It's different from every manufacturer, manufacturer. And so it's it's just a giant mess there. And, and the, the, the industry likes it that way because as long as it's a mess, they can continue monetizing that data. Um, the last thing they want are strict regulations that, you know, define where that data is going after it's collected. So this is a really important issue to us for a number of reasons. I think driver monitoring systems, it's really important there because there are a lot of people who, you know, if 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 some of these companies don't want driver don't want to have to install driver monitoring systems in their vehicles or don't want to improve the vehicles by installing any type of monitoring that prevents drivers from doing bad things speeding driving drunk and all these things then they're going to use the privacy 
uh, threat to scare consumers away from the technology. We've already seen people doing this with driver monitoring, where in, when in fact that type of data should be collected, used in, in the immediate period to to advise the vehicle and the driver monitoring system of whether the driver's engaged, and then it should be functionally, you know, if not used for improving safety, it should be thrown away. I mean, there's 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 no reason for that data to be retained, and there's certainly no reason for it to be sold um, to any other third parties. So that's a you know, it's a really important important part of a lot of the new electronics coming into vehicles is that we make sure we're we're monitoring how companies are using the data they collect from them. So the thing that struck me about what you just said was um popcorn. So how come <laughs> how come no one has sold an in-car popcorn maker? Come on. Oh, I, I, I you know <laughs> If you really wanted to do that, I'm sure you could buy a little air popper and plug it into a USB or, you know, whatever. And then they can track my heart rate as it goes up to happy levels as I'm making popcorn driving down the road. Fred, you seem Are to we like drifting away from our mission here? I'm... <laughs> Look, I'm hungry, apparently, and he mentioned popcorn. <laughs> Uh, okay, let's jump to uh, consumer reports that came out with some reliable. Let's try that again from the top. Three, two. Consumer reports came out with some reliability. Ah, it doesn't matter. Reliability. reliability. Thank <laughs> you. It's reliability. Wow. Reliability uh, rankings. Uh, and it uh, looks like, um, hey, let me, before we jump into this, are you guys familiar with the auto safety, the Center for Auto Safety? Because if you go to that website and you click on donate, you know, in a week or two, we'll show you our reliability rating. God, you know, we're never mind. Let's go back to consumer <laughs> reports. So they came out with their list of reliability ratings. So they survey all of their members and say, hey, what's how much do you like your car a year later, two years later, five years later? And uh, they're saying that EVs, electric vehicles, not really holding up that well, that they have 79% more problems than conventional cars which is shocking because as we all know they have 79% less moving parts. Um is it just because these are new and they're still working out the bugs? Is it you know what Well, we I suspect it's because they're heavier <clears throat> and the suspension components that they've been developing for oh 100 years or so for uh lighter cars are not up to the task. Okay, so your guess is around that. Okay. Um, I mean, it's certainly because they're new. I would also guess that there's some disenchantment. Um, we know that consumers are complaining en masse about some of the interfaces that these vehicles give you, whether it's the infotainment system or, you know, simple things like turning off your defrogger, de de defrogger. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> defrogger well. and defog defroster. So <laughs> driving through biblical events. That, there's there's simple tasks that that go through that you have to go through as a driver or even passenger sometimes that you've known how to do all your life with buttons that are now being moved to a computer screen and you know I think some of the reliability ratings are, may may reflect that disenchantment and there's a lot of new bells and whistles on these cars that consumers have to get adjusted to as well so. Mm -hmm. Well, Michael, I, thank you. I've never before seen a biblical reference to EVs. <laughs> the plague of frogs. It's good to know that we're ready. Yeah, a defrogger button. Every car needs that. 
Um, but you know, one of the things that was really kind of stuck out to me is that you know EVs, yeah, seventy nine percent sounds bad, but I think it was um, plug in hybrids were had a worse, a far right. worse rating. They were forty six percent more problem, more problem than gas vehicles, and I think some of that has been driven by. Um, the Chrysler Pacifica plug-in hybrid, yeah. which has just been a disaster right. for people who bought it to be able to plug it in and charge it and go to work without using gas. And then we're told you can't plug it in anymore because of the safety recall. And there've yeah, been a lot of problems with those Pacifica plug-in hybrids and some other plug-in hybrids. I think we've even got a plug-in hybrid Jeep recall um, another Stellantis product today, which shows you why for, that Chrysler, if you look at, the um, reliability ratings by manufacturer on the Consumer Reports website. Chrysler is really down at the bottom, um, and their numbers don't look good at all. I think they were Ooh. just, I mean. Right. I think it's important to note. That's probably a good way to describe it. It's important to note that the reliability varies widely among different brands, and the plug-in hybrids uh, by Toyota ranked very well. So, you know, there's there's an. I'm not sure if the outlier is the uh, the cheap plug-in hybrids that don't work well, or the high quality hybrid plug-ins that work very well. So, anyway, uh, consumers should note that there is brand sensitivity and read the report to make yeah, sure you've got the full story. It's interesting. They so they do their full uh, brand reliability ratings and the top of the list is what you'd expect of people being the most happy with Lexus and Toyota. Uh the bottom of the list being Chrysler and Mercedes Benz. I mean that was surprising to see Mercedes Benz number twenty nine out of thirty on the list because I figure if you're spending a hundred well maybe I don't know. I've never thought to spend a hundred thousand dollars on a car. That I have no idea how much a Mercedes costs, but I'm gonna guess a hundred thousand dollars. I figured I'd be like, hey it's the greatest thing ever. I, it can't get do any wrong. No? I don't know. Maybe maybe Mercedes owners are persnickety for some reason. But, you know, from a safety and design perspective, Mercedes generally does pretty well uh, from what we see. I, I just I, I don't have any experience at all with, with Mercedes quality. I'm sure repairs after you're out of warranty can be tough there. Mm. Well, I owned one once, uh, 1986. Uh, Mercedes 300 DT. Uh, for the first hundred thousand miles or so, it was fantastic. After that, it became a nightmare. It was uh, thousands of dollars, several times a year, to fix this and that. So I, I think that the cars are fantastic if you keep up with the maintenance, but they don't seem to be designed for long-term use with low maintenance. Um, I found the same thing with with uh, the Volkswagens that I've owned, they hit the wall at around 100,000 miles and then they become a nightmare. I have not seen the same thing with the Japanese designed cars. No. So I briefly mentioned, I tried to mention that, uh, so the Center for Auto Safety, we collect a bunch of uh, complaints. People write in. By the time they get to us and submit a complaint, they've already gone through everybody else and we get all this data. So we do not have a reliability rating coming up, but we have, hey, these are the top 10 cars that people have submitted the most complaints about. 
It's kind of the inverse of what Consumer Reports does. Consumer Reports says, hey, these cars are good to buy, where we can list out the last year. These are the cars that people hate and they've written in. And so stay tuned for that. That will be coming up soon. And we have it. And it's not necessarily all like, hey, 22 models. It goes back to 2012 and and whatnot of, of various uh, vehicles that people are just not that happy with. It's a very exciting list. And I'll give you a hint. Uh, Ford's on the list a number of times. A number, a number of times. But now let's jump into ODBs for EVs. We've talked about this before. You got an electric vehicle and you want to take it to the repair shop. You can do this with your ICE vehicle. You plug it in. You get some diagnostic codes. Your local mechanic can go, oh, I know what this is. Your local dealer can say, oh, I know what this is. But then you've upgraded. You've said you've seen the light and you're like, I want an electric vehicle and you can take it to your local repair shop. And they say, I, I well, we, we can't do anything with this. Uh, I can't do that. You can take it to your dealer and they can go, uh, uh, that guy isn't here today. Uh, what do we do? So now they're coming up with, thankfully, standards on how these things will repair diagnostic tools will monitor and link into your EV to find out what broke and why. Our OBD stands for Onboard Diagnostic System. This was uh, surprisingly initiated by the Environmental Protection Agency because people were complaining about the price and, and awkward machinery associated with testing for the continued operation of pollution controls. So the industry and government came up with the idea that if you have onboard sensors that monitor the oxygen um, composition of your exhaust and the chemical composition of your exhaust, that is a way of uh, assuring that your pollution controls are still operating as intended. But people needed a way to get the data out of that. So the EPA initiated this. Uh, technology, which is called onboard diagnostic systems, which let people plug into the car and find out that the pollution controls were still working as intended. This turned out to be very popular. And so the industry extended that to other parts of the car so that mechanics uh, themselves, garages could plug in and find out what's going on in the car and all of the systems that are being monitored by the OBD. So that's the background on this. It wasn't originally intended to monitor overall car operation, but has grown in that direction. And as Anthony said, it doesn't work well for EV unique features. And incidentally, it does not work at all for built-in technology for uh, automatic safety processes, like the onboard automatic emergency braking, lane keeping systems, all of those safety systems that are built into your computer system right now. So, uh, you know, it's important to get that information out. It's important to know that those systems are operating as intended, but it's just not there yet. So starting in 2026, uh, California has a regulation, part of the state's Advanced Clean Cars 2 program that will require automakers to phase in a standard EV diagnostic system. Uh, so that's a good thing. Looks like California, again, leading the way on these things. Um, and Michael's very animated, and he, he forgot the mute button. Well, California has the um, 
you know, the 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 only confirmed NHTSA administrator that we've had in the past seven years or so after the CAFE rule went through, um, left after three months of being confirmed and went back to California to CARB and is working on these rules now. So um, that is, you know, I, I think the, the, the OBD2 and the electric version of it are monitoring a lot of uh, engine and emissions related things, possibly some things in real time that impact safety, but uh, most of the safety data in your vehicle that is being collected and can be checked is being stored in the black box or the electronic data recorder, as well as, you know, in, in a lot of systems that manufacturers aren't making accessible to consumers, whether it's an OBD or not. I mean, Tesla, for instance, collects a thousand or more different um, vehicle performance characteristics every millisecond or so, and they're storing that in the cloud. And as a Tesla owner, you don't have access to all of that. You have access to some things, but not all of that. Um, and that's kind of the wave of the future. Our cars, we know that Toyota is capturing camera images. A lot of cars are capturing camera images, possibly video and a lot of data now. And um, outside of this area, you know, we, there needs to be more regulation there as well. We need to see consistency in how, you know, in crash investigators could show up to a scene and figure out what was going on at the crash based on the data the car has. And they're finding that it's it's really difficult to do that because every manufacturer has a different system in place and there there's no ability to go in and, you know, just download the data and have it be usable and ready for use by crash investigation professionals. So that's something that's going to have to change. Um, and it's something that the NTSB has noted in its investigations of Tesla as well. Well, this sounds pretty good. And know what else sounds pretty good? Going to autosafety.org and clicking on donate. Do it now. Do it twice. Do it three times. Do it thrice. Thrice. Sure. Why not? Hey, we're talking about California. Let's stick with California. So California is doing the right thing. What we're just talking about with this ODB2 stuff. Now, maybe California is not doing such a right thing with uh, driverless semis. We've talked about this in the past, and there's a number of driverless semi companies, and they want safety drivers. Well, the Teamsters and uh, everybody else on the road wants a safety driver involved in this. And the companies are like, nah, we don't need anybody behind the wheel. Driverless cars, they take care of themselves. They're good to go. And Governor Newsom's like, okay, write me a check. Great. I agree. I don't know if he said write me a check, but eh, maybe. I don't know. You know, something. This is my uh, impression. These uh, opinions are strictly my own, not that for the Center for Auto Safety. No, and, he definitely uh, falls into our, you know, if we're going to rank governors <laughs> on the, the tech bro satisfaction scale, he's got to be number one. Right? <laughs> so, yeah, he's basically said, yeah, you don't need uh, drivers behind these 18 wheelers. The cars will just drive themselves. Uh, scary, scary stuff. So, uh, But there's still a lot of, you know, it, the, the article was talking about um, – how this year is a big year for those trucks and whether that because they've continued to say similar things to other companies you know we're deploying any day we're taking the safety driver out any day and they need to show their investors just like gm cruise did that these things can actually operate without a driver 
the 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 bill that was vetoed by Newsom would have guaranteed that they couldn't do that and and preserve safety for a period. That didn't happen. So there's a chance that will be occurring in the near future. I'm not sure what type of an, ancillary effects there have been from the cruise debacle and and whether some of the CEOs who are involved in trucks have taken note of that it doesn't seem like they've taken too much note of it i mean i saw in this article that they're they're continuing to repeat the same kind of thing we were hearing from gm cruise human drives are terrible our computers don't drive drunk don't drive stoned blah 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 and yet you know we don't have enough experience with these vehicles to know what you know the electronic version of stone drunk or whatever is there's you know, they've not been on the road long. They're going to have lots of failures that need to be addressed in the future, just like humans. And yet we know about the human failures. So they're, they're con- continually pointing that out um, as though it proves that their vehicles are safe when in fact they haven't really proven it at all. And and, and that's something we're going to continue to watch um, as these trucks roll out, um, I, I got to think that they're going to be moving a little more slowly now, given the events that have occurred in the past three months or so. There's a study by, uh, is it Orion? Is that the name of the company in Texas that's uh, promoting the the self-driving trucks? Where there's they looked Kodiak, at, there's Aurora. I'm Aurora, sure. that's what I was thinking. Yeah. Aurora came out with a study and they looked at the numbers of uh, collisions that had occurred with heavy trucks on the route that they intend to use for their automatic vehicles. And I, I, there was some number like 24, something like that. And they, <laughs> it was interesting. They said, we put these in our simulation and we showed through our simulations that all of these would have been avoided if we'd only had the automatic driving system in place and instead of these damn human drivers. And I thought that was really interesting because, uh, you know, the expression, I've used a couple times here is that simulations are doomed to succeed. And you you basically just keep working on the simulations, which are always abstractions necessarily of the real world until you come up with a solution that you like. In no case did they ever actually replicate the dangerous situation on a test track or anywhere else to validate their simulations. Uh, if this is the best they can do, they can't really do very well to assure the safety of the self-driving trucks. The other thing I wanted to bring up is that Anthony mentioned 18-wheelers. There's no limitation, as far as I know, on whether it's an 18-wheeler or a 34-wheeler or a 50-wheeler. The industry wants to have these trains essentially running on the highways because, you know, the inconvenience of human drivers in every truck cost them money. So you may have the pleasure of seeing 60 tons of, right? Is this 20 tons per trailer, Michael? Is that the right number? I believe you can, your entire operation can weigh, I think it's, I want to say it's 40 tons, but. 40 tons. So you can have 120 tons if you have a train of three trailers rolling down the interstate with no human being in control of that. Uh, at very high speeds, this is uh, this is uh, going to be a real problem. Well, unless it's a Tesla semi, because they can only haul potato chips right now, so it'll be much lighter. But 
from the article on The Verge as uh, a quote, the technology is finally at a point where driverless is here and it's been a long time coming, says Kodiak, uh, an autonomous 18-wheeler. It's uh, here. It's here. Coming, uh, said Kodiak's <laughs> co-founder and CEO, Don Burnett, who's been working in the self-driving vehicle space for 15 years. Uh, we've really solved all of the fundamental technology hurdles that we need to. Now it's just about proving the safety. Which, <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's just that's just that, stupid. Yeah, that's, that's just PR. Uh, yeah. Yeah, we know, built the airplane. Now we just have to show that it flies. I mean, that exactly. attitude goes against the attitude you have to have of continual development to make sure these things are safe. I mean, it just it basically it shows that that guy doesn't understand what he's doing. Yeah, we've proved the technology works, but we just can't prove that it won't kill you. Like, it just, it's madness. It's uh, the tech bros. Oh, boy, oh, boy. Hey, continuing with tech bros, my favorite subject of all time. Can anyone guess? Anyone guess? Anyone? Anyone? Bueller? Bueller? Yes, uh-huh. GM Cruise. Okay, GM Cruise. So, you know, we've talked about how uh, Kyle got fired. Oh, no, he got to resign because when you get paid millions of dollars, you don't get fired. You get to resign. Uh, he uh, and and other people got got resigned as well and lawyers took it over and GM's basically like we're shutting this down this is stupid uh, so part of this process that they get to go fully autonomous and take up uh, uh, pay for uh, charge people for rides all the time was the California Public Utilities Commission said yes these things are safe yes go right ahead and do it and no we were not your former general counsel at GM Cruz says one of the voting members of the California Public Utility Commission and now after GM Cruz uh, dragged uh, one of those pesky humans underneath its cars uh, the California Public Utility Commission said the self-driving car company admitted critical information about the safety of its vehicles regarding this incident. And now the CPUC is investigating crews and saying, hey, damn it. Now, you know, we, we went to bat for you and you're making us look stupid. Come on. And you made my stocks worthless. I went onto this commission because I wanted to vote for you and then come back to work for the company, says uh, former GM Cruz general counsel who sits on the California Public Utility Commission. That's pure speculation, though. It is pure <laughs> speculation, but I'm, I'm. It's pretty good speculation. The result. Well, I, mean, I, I, I think they, the, you know, I think they. This is part of the reflexive kind of anger, I guess, or disappointment that these, you know, the regulators in in these cases feel when you've been lied to. I mean. I, I, they were told that this crash occurred because of X, Y, and Z, and that was not the case. And Cruz was lying by a mission to prevent them finding out what actually happened. So I hope that you know, the CPUC is not the only government body that's pursuing fines against GM Cruz for this. Their, you know, NHTSA's standing general order contains provisions that I think could be used to find them based on their first report, which was clearly misleading to the federal government. And you also have the California DMV here involved in this. And they 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 have some penalty provisions as well that I think need to be deployed um, because there just needs to be a signal sent to the rest of the people operating this industry, whether they're building robo taxis or giant autonomous trucks that you're not going to be able to bullshit your way into um, being allowed to operate on roads. If you can't prove and demonstrate that the vehicles are safe. Um, 
that's ultimately what what's got to happen here. I mean, you have to punish people who are willing to lie to regulators to get their product on the streets. So don't lie about regulators. Don't wait. Don't lie to regulators. I don't know. Uh, before we jump into the towel, I want to jump into a little uh, little something I've learned about Michael Brooks. Okay, Michael Brooks, lawyer, safety advocate, man about town, and also Yakov Smirnoff fan. Because he sent around notes to this week, and we generally just send around links to each other all week long, and he compiles them nicely. And uh, one, he decided to, to label the road charges you, which is a very Yakov Smirnoff thing to say. Uh, this is an interesting little article. Is a uh, Ford outside of their uh, research facility in Michigan. They have part of the road that's set up to help charge EVs as they drive down the road, which I think is pretty clever. Uh, the Israelis have something similar to this going on for buses. Um, it's a cool, everything's going to be better in the future type situation. We have the link to the article in Jalopnik, and I'm sure the two of you have questions, comments, and concerns. Oh, none at all. Um, this <laughs> seems like a really wonderful idea. So have hey, you ever on. do you have have you ever had the experience of sitting in front of a radiant heater in your house? You know, a, yeah. a space heater. Oh, and yeah. it's glowing red, right? And it's heating up the room and and it feels nice and cozy. Well, that is about fifteen hundred watts, which is roughly two horsepower. So <laughs> don't typical, try that horsepower bullshit with me. We've discussed horsepower. Okay, nice try. Move on. If it's got to do with horsepower, it's horseshit. It's not bullshit. Just to be <laughs> Sorry. clear. Sorry. All right. So the point is you've got two horsepower coming through your radiant heater. In order to run your car, your vehicle down the road at highway speeds, you need to have about 20 horsepower. So the amount of power that you would need to come from the road into your car is the equivalent of about 10 space heaters continuously driving power through the pavement. How the hell is this going to work? I mean, that's a lot of power. That's a lot of stinking power. And uh, yeah, they've shown they can put through about one kilowatt. Well, that's very nice, but... Um, no, 16 man, kilowatts. That's what it's... I'm said. sorry? Is uh, 16 kilowatts. 16 uh, kilowatts? To a test van driving at nine miles per hour. At nine miles per <laughs> hour. Okay. Hey, it's a very early days. Come on. It's very early days. So, uh, I, I just, man, that's a lot of power out there. And um, if it's freely accessible to vehicles, it's going to be freely accessible to people who want to steal it as well. Uh, I, this uh, This seems truly like a bad idea whose time has come, maybe. Wait, how do you how do you mean that people would steal it? I don't understand. Well, like, people steal dig up power the all the time from electrical overhead wires. They put up another wire, and uh, it is inductively coupled to the overhead wires, and uh, the power flows into people's houses. That's how people steal electric power all the time. If you've got the power in the roadway, uh, you can set up a coil of wire next to the roadway, and Go ahead and steal the power that's flying, that's flowing through it. If you've got the, you know, the current surging, it's just a lot of current. It's just an awful lot of power. I don't know how this is going to work. I, I don't. Uh, well, maybe that's just my ignorance talking, or maybe it's my inner luddite speaking. I'm not sure, <laughs> but this really seems like a bad idea. I, I just put lead weights on the electrical meter so it doesn't run as fast. 
No, that's that's a Texas steering wheel you're thinking of. Oh, oh, oh. <laughs> I can't. I, I, my only real comment on this one would be, you know, that just sounds incredibly expensive, and something that to produce at scale across America's roads is. There are a lot more safety and infrastructure projects we need to have in place before we're charging our vehicles from the road. Boo to both of you. Boo. I thought it sounded cool. Yeah, it's impractical. It, it is cool. It is cool. It, but, right? you know. It, but it, it's not as cool as the roads that play music when you drive over them because they have the humps arranged in certain ways, right? Whoa, wait, what? Oh, and by the way, it would be a lot, less, mind. a lot less expensive to put up protected bike paths that yeah. uh, people can use and, you know, make the kind of infrastructure improvements that will reduce the number of vehicles on the road, thereby enhancing safety for everybody. Yeah. Plus, this is America. Charge your EV on your own dime, bro. Oh, man. I don't know what to think anymore. Uh, but with that, I think this is the perfect transition to the the town of Fred, because I'm just going to go cry You've for a bit. Now entered the but today we're going to cover uh, how does a desiccant work? And if I have a desiccant inserted into my tear ducts, will it prevent me from crying? It depends on the story that you're reading. Some of them. <laughs> so so what is a desiccant? A desiccant is something that absorbs moisture and, uh, and hangs onto it so that it doesn't slip into other parts of the package. So you've got a desiccant in a lot of moisture-sensitive foods that you buy, and it's a little silica gel packet that says, do not eat. Um, and that's good advice, by the way, because it's basically just sand. So, uh, Anthony, a question for you. Have you ever taken aspirin? Yes. Have you ever taken an aspirin pill? Yes. And you put the pill in your mouth and you drink some water and down it goes, right? This is a typically personal, yeah. but okay, I'll, I'll go with that. Have you ever chewed an aspirin? Yes. And does that taste the same, or is that kind of a worse experience? Much worse. Much worse. And the reason is because when you chew the aspirin, <clears throat> excuse me, you dramatically increase the surface area of the chemical components in the aspirin. What happens is it dissolves very rapidly in your mouth because of that increase in surface area and creates that wonderful yuck sensation that uh, <laughs> many people have experienced. So the same thing happens with certain propellants that are in the airbag inflators when they're exposed to moisture. And it turns out that the airbag inflators are actually very complex. There's a thing in them called an accelerator, which uh, is what accepts the electrical signal and creates a small flame, and then that accelerator sends the flame down over the ammonium nitrate in the um, in the airbag inflator, and the ammonium nitrate starts to burn. Now, when it starts to burn, it burns on the surface. As it burns and gets uh, hotter, it burns even more rapidly. So it's kind of like an avalanche, right, where you've got a rock or something perched high on a mountain. It's got a lot of potential energy, and something knocks that rock off the top of the mountain or starts the avalanche sliding, and then it builds and builds and builds until the energy is released. So that's kind of what's happening inside of the airbag inflator as the material burns. But since it only burns on the surface, if you increase the surface area, 
then it burns more rapidly, just simply because there's more surface area, like biting on the aspirin rather than just swallowing it. Now, what happens with the infusion of water into the uh, Takata airbag with the accelerant is that it moves through the accelerant and into the ammonium nitrate under certain thermal conditions. Other conditions, it moves back the other way. So there's a lot of transfer that's taking place. And when over time, that transfer of water uh, causes the development of micropores in the wafers that contain the ammonium nitrate. And these micropores dramatically increase the surface area of the uh, ammonium nitrate. So a lot more surface area where the burning can take place. Now, it's not clear to me what the desiccant is that they put into the airbag inflators. Um, this, this Are one there any regulations around what desiccant they can use? Oh, of course not. <laughs> so, uh, you know, this gets, but ultimately, this gets back to the whole idea of qualification of the uh, of the airbag inflators. But narrowly speaking, the desiccant is intended to suck all the moisture out of the out of the airbag uh, inflator to ensure the integrity of the wafers that contain the ammonium nitrate, which, you know, you want to have burning rapidly, yes, but only just so rapidly so that you don't overwhelm right. the uh, the poor. And this is all happening in just a, a very short period of time. So yeah, milliseconds, milliseconds, yes. But the burn micro, rate of, yeah. It's probably microseconds when things go haywire. But, you know, the difference between a millisecond and a microsecond is a factor of a thousand. So that's basically what's going on. And the desiccant is supposed to stop that from happening. So what's the problem? Well, the problem is that there's no standards on how the inflators are supposed to be built. That desiccants will only absorb a certain amount of moisture and no more because that's just what they can do. So if they're in an environment where there's continual ingress of moisture, uh, it could be, and I don't know that this is so, it could be that the desiccants are simply getting overwhelmed and they've reached beyond their capacity. What we do know is that the thermal cycles in a um, humid environment is associated with the increased failure rate of the inflators. So it's reasonable to think that, that it, you know, it is a cycling of the moisture between the different components in the airbag inflator that's causing the micropore development. And this is, you know, uh, this sounds like a lot of blah, 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 but really it's, it's quite simple. Swallow the aspirin without chewing it or chew it, you know, and when you chew it, you have an, a response in your mouth that is really analogous to the overwhelming burn rate of the airbag inflator that's going to rupture. Does that make sense? It sounds confusing to me. Yeah, it's just boring. Oh, sorry. Wait. <laughs> no, that <laughs> no, makes it, sense it, to me. I, I understand it now. This is the, good. But one of the one of the deployments was in. Um, we I think there have been two in this type of airbag. There was one in Brazil in a. GM vehicle that was uh, recalled that batch was recalled in August where you would, I mean, I, I, I just think of Brazil and I think humidity. So I'm assuming 
you know, that, but the most recent BMW recall that, that one occurred in Chicago, which doesn't make as much sense when we're talking about humidity, but you know, um, right. But we have to talk about the manufacturing process as well. So I, I don't know that the airbag inflator has an O-ring, but most of them do have O-rings that they use as a seal to keep the moisture out. Uh, the efficacy of an O-ring depends upon the dimensions of the O-ring and the dimensions of the seal, the manufacturing tolerances that are associated with the uh, airbag inflator assembly, and the overall stack up of all of these tolerances. Inevitably, when you have a very complex system and the integrity of the system relies upon a long chain of manufacturing tolerances, it's hard to control them in, in every case such that it comes out to be adequate. O-rings in general are not 100% effective in keeping moisture out of a system. So if you combine the fact that the O-rings themselves are not 100% effective with the stack up of tolerances that are required to put the airbag inflator together, uh, you've just got a problem if the underlying propellant is sensitive to the moisture ingress. And again, yeah. we don't know we we don't know what all the details are of this particular problem. But if we look at a typical airbag inflator, there's just a lot of ways for the moisture to get in. And as Takata noted in their study, the industry standard helium leak test is only suitable for identifying leak paths important in the permeation-driven transport mechanism, but not diffusion. Okay, so the, they they noted in that report that they don't really understand the mechanism. They don't have a test for the integrity of the airbag inflator that actually responds to the mechanism that's causing them to fail. This is in 2016. So who knows what they've got now, but you know, it's, it's uh, deep within their proprietary bowels. Aren't airbags can, can somebody look, can somebody manufacture an airbag or does somebody right now manufacture an airbag that is free of these defects that will work has, doesn't have a problem. Is that yes. I don't know the answer to that. Uh, mm. All I know is that there's no standard for performance. There's no standard for qualification for airbag inflators in cars. Now, I also want to point out that in military systems, there's something called a fail-safe a fail uh, safe mechanism, which is that anytime you've got a pyrotechnic device like this, there's a safe and arm uh, system associated with it. And basically what happens is there's a mechanical system that is in one position that makes sure the system is safe. It cannot go off independently. That's typically a motor or something like a motor. And then before, when you arm the missile or you arm the device, the motor physically turns a contact into completing an electrical circuit that can then allow the single shot device, which is what an airbag inflator is, to be fired. Cars don't have this same mechanism. People decided that, that, you know, it's not as important to assure the safety of somebody in a car as it is to assure the fact that a missile is going to fire when you try to fire it. And you've probably seen this in movies where, you know, you've got the pilot there and there's a bad guy coming and they flip a switch that says arm the missile. Well, when they do that, that's what's happening. There's a mechanical motion that makes the electrical contact, which will then enable the missile to be fired. 
that's completely missing in a car. Uh, and it makes sense that it's missing in a car because you don't have the time to arm the airbag before a collision occurs. So essentially, you're arming the airbag every time you turn the ignition on. Mm. So, you know, these are always ready to go. And it's interesting the difference in the safety protocols that are deemed acceptable in military systems versus the commercial systems that people use every day. I, I, I don't understand that gap. I don't understand why NHTSA allows systems to be built where there's no industry standard test to assure the integrity of that system. I don't understand why NHTSA is unique in all of the government agencies with which I'm familiar of not putting a standard in place for the safety of pyrotechnic devices that are going to expose the public to danger. Uh, this, this is a baffling, baffling absence to me. There's got to be at least one airbag manufacturer that has been producing airbags for a couple decades that hasn't are, had these yeah. manufactured. Okay, so I mean, we we haven't seen these outside of Takata and and and, and yeah, an ARC airbag. So, so I think there's Joyson and there's Continental and there's there's a number of groups that make airbags where we haven't seen these kind of deployments. So. We, and a lot of that may have to do with the fact that a lot of these folks may not may not have been using, you know, ammonium nitrate, which has proved to be a particularly troublesome formulation. Well, yeah. I think a lot of it's also got to do with the fact that Takata dominated the market. Yeah. And, and you know, far more of the Takata airbags were put into cars than anyone else because it was cheaper. Because I, I look at this as it, it, it just from a consumer point of view, you, you don't think about an airbag when you buy a car. You don't th you think, hey, that hit has airbags. Great. And then you move on from that because the consumer mindset is this is a solved problem. Like this is like a seatbelt. Like this is a known problem. It's been solved. Like there's not yeah, I've never gone into a, a car where it's a different nylon material for the seatbelt. It seems that all seatbelt material is the exact same thing in the in every car that I've been in in the last you know forty plus years. Uh, I There's a standard for that. Yeah. So ah, yeah. see, Bing, that's what's missing there. Okay. And so with airbags, I looked at it, that as like that seems to be a solved problem. Like from an engineering point of view, like who the hell wants to work on airbags? We finished that. It's done. Like I look at it in the world of software, like with with uh like email systems. No one wants to work on address books. Because who cares? It's boring. It's done. We got that. So I, I that's why I don't understand with airbags why this, why we're seeing something that looks, at least from an engineering perspective, from a naive engineering perspective, is a solved problem. Why do they keep messing it up? And it just comes down to lack of regulations, huh? Well, it, what what it, when you don't have a regulation in place, I, I think what it really allows for is for constant you know, redesigning the product to achieve something that is cheaper. Um, and you're constantly looking for the next cheapest product to bring down your costs on vehicles, then, you know, you do things like switch from one propellant to ammonium nitrate, and then you have this problem because you didn't sufficiently test prior to making that change. Mm, um, so even even when there's a standard in place, for instance, even when there's a seatbelt webbing standard, 
you're going to see manufacturers who try to push, you know, push the bounds to find cheaper materials, cheaper ways of doing it and achieving the same or similar results in order to save money on their bottom line. That's, you know, so when you think as a consumer that something's been solved, well, maybe someone out there has solved the problem and knows how to do it, but there's somebody coming behind them trying to figure out how to do it for cheaper. In a typical military program, once you have qualified the system, if you make any change to the manufacturing process, you have to requalify the product. Right. The only the only reason you have to do that is because the standard for qualification exists. And why NHTSA doesn't have a qualification standard for energetic devices that are in your car that can kill you is is beyond my understanding. NHTSA, please solve this problem. Signed, everyone who's ever gotten to a vehicle ever. And with that, let's jump into Recall Roundup. Or I like to call it Rear View Camera Roundup. But this week, I don't know if there's a Rear View Camera Roundup. No, it's been a couple of weeks. No Rear View Cameras recently. Amazing. First one comes from a little company called Chrysler. 32,000 plus vehicles, 21 to 23 Jeep Wranglers. Uh, their plug-in hybrid vehicles may have a high-voltage battery, which may fail internally. Uh, the defect has not been identified, and the re- root, cause is, root cause is still being investigated, along with my speech impediment today. So yeah, you're uh, having some issues there. Maybe you could park outside <laughs> just like these cars. So there is a park outside warning on these. Don't put them in your driveway. If you have one of these 21 to 23 Wranglers, I do not recommend those vehicles and not just because of this recall. But if you've got one, park it outside. Um, It looks like they're still looking into what the problem is. They're still investigating the root cause. And, you know, I just mentioned the Pacifica plug-in hybrid problems. You know, we're not sure if this is a related issue or not, but Chrysler's vehicles and their plug-in hybrid specifically seem to be having some big problems uh, with battery failures and fires. So everyone makes sure they're staying on top of this one, parking outside, and then hopefully there will be a fix available soon. All right. Uh, moving on, we have uh, another Chrysler. Uh, yes. We'll just stick with Chrysler here. There's a potentially 142,000 plus vehicles, the 2023 Ram 1500 Classic. Uh, they so this may have was the recall that we didn't have on the list last right. week, mm. right? Right. Yeah. And so what, what that was and why it was a little confusing for me last week, too, was an equipment manufacturer submitted a part 573 defect report to NHTSA and it specified that there was, you know, a steering column control module that has Would this be improper... BCS automotive. Yes, this is BCS automotive. And mm-hmm. it's saying that they had, you know, th- that recall said, you know, there was a problem with the clock spring in these in that was contaminated right so it's not the clock springs not working that's a really important part to make sure that your airbag works and if your clock springs messed up your airbag light comes on your airbag probably won't be deployed because it's deactivated um so that's the problem bcs cited but then you see chrysler's 573 and they are saying well this is about um turn signals and high beams on you know 
what appears to be the same part, the steering column control module that this this other equipment manufacturer cited. So I'm still really a little confused about what what the real problem is here. Is it just are these? In fact, I'm 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 still not even clear if these are the same recall. Although we don't hear a lot about steering control, steering column control modules. Um, too often in 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 this area so there's apparently a lot of ford vehicles and general motors vehicles that also are using this steering column control module they were cited in the bcs submission so this one is definitely worth keeping an eye on to see you know that's a lot of chrysler vehicles that were affected 100 around 150,000. they actually issued two recalls on the issue and um i'm guessing that General Motors and Ford are going to have a lot of affected vehicles as well, but they haven't yet submitted their defect reports. So dealers and owners will be notified uh, on January 17th of the coming year. Uh, So stay tuned for that. Make sure everything's hunky-dory on your end. Uh, And with that, I think we're uh, done for the day. Thank you very much, gentlemen, listeners. As always, please go to autosafety.org and click on donate. It's the end of the year. Come on today. It's a charitable deduction. I don't know what a charitable deduction means, but it's one of those. If you got an accountant, tell them and they'll be like, ooh, look at that. You're a good person. And you can keep fun. That's a really nice accountant. Can you recommend him to me? Yeah, look, it's a it is a it is a five hundred one c three. It's a tax deduction. I don't know how tax deductions work, but they you know people do. And for, who cares about the tax deduction? You know, keep this show alive. Keep what we're doing alive. Keep uh, and then you get to pay attention. And and you know we've got uh, who else is going to show you a hippo on roller skates? Huh? Nobody else. Okay, we will tell you all the dangers that are out on the road and scare you to death. No, we'll try to make things better and educate you at the same time. And with that, listeners, thank you so much. Goodbye. Thank you and goodbye. Bye, everybody. For more information, visit www.autosafety.org.